So I'm going to go over the book of, of 2 Samuel. Um, so last week we had 1 Samuel, um, which Ram has presented. And I'm going to go over the second part, which is which is 2 Samuel. And the two books are really, they're really counterparts. They fit in together like the pieces of a puzzle. They show two different sides of, of the coin. Um, and we'll go into it in a little bit of detail. Um, I was just thinking, um, just, just before getting into the detail of the book, um, just something on a very, just a very really basic level about looking at the scriptures. I've, I've really enjoyed every presentation so far, and I've really enjoyed the, the way each person brings things that they can, that they see in each of these books that are different to the way that I would normally look at a, at a, at a book of, of the Bible. Um, just a different way of looking at things, a different way of, of in, interpreting things. And I just wanted to share with you something I've been thinking about just really quickly that there's, there's real, there's three things that I can, I can see um, the ways in which the scripture really speaks to us. Um, and one of those is total surface, face value, literal facts, historical information. Um, this is what God did. Things that we just accept by faith. Um, like the Lord Jesus said, um, um, have, you not re- heard, have you not read such and such? And they were just basic facts, like he made them in the beginning, man and woman, things like that. There is great benefit just to know the details of Scripture the history of the books of the Bible, how everything fits in. Um, and the second thing that, that um, a lot of people have been looking at as we're going through these books is the, the types of scripture. So um, where we see the Lord Jesus, um, his characteristics, things that point to events that will happen in the future, um, types of the person of the Lord himself, types of prophetic events, um, the, 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 the meaning behind the meaning. Um, the, the, the one God that's put this book together ties the whole, the whole thing um, in, in one. Um, and then the third thing is, is just the, the moral lessons, um, the things that speak to our hearts, the thing that convicts us of, of sin, the things that shows us where we go wrong and how we can mend our ways or how we can return to God. Um, in this thing or or that or that thing. So I just wanted to share that as a as a um, as a brief thing. And Second um, Samuel's full of all three of those things. There's great lessons on each of those um, of those heads. So, um, all right. So Rama's last time mentioned about First Samuel that there were there were three characters that were prominent in the book. Um, you, you might remember there was the prophet Samuel, um, there was King Saul, and there was King David. Um, so in in Second Samuel, I think there are also three characters that come out really prominently in the in the book, and David's the only one that carries from from one to the other because he's the link between the two books. Um, but there's the King David, um, there's his son Absalom, um, and perhaps there's the military leader Joab. Um, they are three people who come out very prominently in this book, um, and they represent different things. First thing to point out about Second Samuel, um, just historically, is that there's a there's a dividing point between the first book of Samuel and the second book of Samuel, um, and that is the death of King Saul. That is the event that brings about 
an entire change of, of, of the condition in which um, Israel is, is in. Um, in 1 Samuel, Saul was the king and David was, in, David was being persecuted. He was being hunted. David was and his men were in a, a lowly condition. They were in a place that the Lord Jesus and his people have had and have today and will have until his return. In 2 Samuel, the picture is turned around and the lowly king becomes the warrior king who comes to set everything right. And that's what we're going to have as a type in the future when the Lord Jesus returns here on this earth um, to set everything right and to remove all wickedness from, from, from this world. And that's what comes out as a type of David in, in, in 2 Samuel. Um, so let's go through it in a little bit of little bit of details. Um, I've broken broken it up into a few few sections. So the first seven chapters, um, sorry, not the first seven chapters. The first four chapters um, are a total of seven years where David is reigning in Hebron, um, and then the remainder of the book, or thirty three thirty three years, uh, where or chapter five, sorry, is where, where David takes from chapter five onwards is where David takes over and reigns in Zion over the whole country. So starting with, with chapter one, um, we have the event of Saul's death um, and David, David mourning it. So basically someone comes to David, tells him um, about the death and claims that he was the person who, who killed Saul um, when when he was at the at his wit's end and ready to, to commit suicide. Um, so we have that story in, in, in 1 Samuel. And one thing that comes out really beautifully about David um, in these first few chapters especially, and, and I think is really a, a characteristic of the Lord Jesus and a type of him, is that, um, you know, in Philippians it says that he didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped at, but he emptied himself. And he, he became obedient and he humbled himself. He didn't try to get anything for himself. The rather he gave up everything that he had and willingly took the lowest place. Um, so much so that when he takes the highest place, it's not his own will in a sense that does it, but it's God who has highly exalted him. And it's God who says to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool of your feet. And you see this beautifully in David. He doesn't, he doesn't try, he does not trying to get Saul killed. Saul dies. He mourns it. He feels for Saul um, as, the, as the king of Israel in those days. He's, he's upset that this person would come to him and tell him that he, that he killed Saul. He feels for him. Um, and the Lord Jesus in that day, I believe he's going to, when he comes to reign and set things right, he is only, he's going to do so in the characteristic of someone who is just filling God's will. Um, someone who is filling the will of God, not as someone who's, who's coming to say, I told you guys, I'm going to set everything right. I'm going to destroy all this wickedness. You should have listened to me. He comes in the characteristic of one who, with great feeling, takes vengeance upon the enemies of God. Um, so that's chapter chapter one. Now there's another king who gets set up, one of Saul's sons by the name of Ishbosheth. Um, he gets set up um, by another military leader in um, in in Israel, um, and David only takes. He becomes the king of Judah 
um, in, in Hebron in, in chapter 2. Now, there's this really interesting um, thing that you see car- that, that carries through the entire book is the quarrel between these military leaders. So you have Joab and his, his brothers. Um, you have Abner, you have Abishai. Um, there's this quarrel that happens between the military leaders of, of David's household and the military leaders of Saul's household. Um, they, they have fun by getting the young men to fight um, one, amongst, one amongst the other. Um, and Joab really takes a prominence. Joab is David's man. Joab is the guy who he's, he's on David's side. Um, and as you go through the, the book of, of 2 Samuel, you see several times Joab comes out as, as being really wise um, in a sense. He seems to always make the right decision at the right time. Um, He seems to always be on the winning side of every argument. He seems to be on the winning side of every battle. Um, He comes out, even makes some statements that seem almost as though he he really understands God's mind. Um, There there was the occasion later in the book where David um, wants to, to number the people and Joab tries to convince him not to. And he says, why would you do this? Why, why anger God? Joab is, I found him really, really interesting um, going, going through this book because he's, he seems to be so wise and yet has no, um, there's no movement of faith in his life. There's no spiritual flame. There's no desire to please God. There's no desire to value the things that God values, like David very clearly does throughout this book. He seems to be like a tagger along, um, but a very smart one. And I don't know what I was thinking about what he could represent. And I, I don't really know other than to just say perhaps just the, the, the might and the power and the influence of this world um, that will go along with, with Christ as long as he is in a, in a good position and on the winning team and, and support him. Um, but there's no reality to it. There's no... Um, there's no nothing that, that will keep it going beyond that. So just an, just an interesting um, thought. Now, in chapter three, Abner, who is Saul's military man, he defects to David for silly reasons. Someone accused him of something and he got angry and he decides to defect to David. Now, we don't know the depth of that or what his, his real feelings were, um, but David takes him at face value. David accepts him. And he is willing to, to take him on um, and have him on, 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 on the, on the, um, amongst his people. But Joab, Joab won't have this. Joab, the, the smart, the cunning man that he is, whether he's jealous of Abner or whether he um, just can't handle the fact that he killed his, his brother, which, which, which Abner did, um, makes Joab um, go out and, and kill him. Um, and, and David is again similar to when Saul dies he's just absolutely grieved he's he mourns um and it's just something really I was just thinking about David's David's heart in this the Lord Jesus you know he can he can see beyond face value with us he can see beyond um what we decide to to what we do outwardly he can see spiritually um, what's happening in our hearts. Um, but he often takes us at face value as well. 
when we make a decision or when we make a commitment or when we say something or when we um, take a stand for something, he will often test that. He will often try it. He will often take us on the position or the words that we have put ourselves into and take us on those terms, even though he might know beyond that, even though he might know the falsehood or the reality of, of such a thing. Um, he will often work with it on those on those terms. Um, okay, so chapter four, we have Ishbosheth is is murdered, and then chapter five, David really comes in um, as the king of Israel. So prior to to chapter five, as we said, David was just the king of Judah in Hebron, but in in chapter five, David becomes the king of all of Israel. And throughout this book, just historically, you can see David's influence as, as a king is just expanding. Um, and, and I think that's going to be true of the Lord Jesus in, in when he comes to returns to this world, typically. Because when the Lord comes, he's not going to, there's going to be a, a, a human reality to his coming. There's not going to be a flash of lightning and poof. And everything is set right and the wicked are judged and he's sitting on the throne and reigning. Um, in the same way that evil is allowed to continue its progress in many different ways and there's a reality to it, there's a progress to it. In the same way, when the Lord returns, there will be a reality, a human reality and a progress to his restoring everything um, the way God wants it to be. There will be a gradual dealing with this world to restore it prior to the, the millennial kingdom taking place. And that's what we see in Solomon's reign. In Solomon's reign, everything's good. It's just peace. Um, oh, well, there's they're, they're not, not entirely in the historical account, but in, in, in a typical form, David's reign when he takes the throne is one of a warrior king. He's fighting and he's restoring everything to the way it should be. And he's gradually putting his enemies down and he starts in Judah and he expands to Israel and he expands the, to the Philistines and the surrounding countries. And eventually to the point where the nations around us, you're going to see in the, in the next few chapters, begin to um, basically subject themselves to, to David and present themselves as his, as his servants. And that's going to be what happens, that we have that in the prophetical word, that that's what happens when the Lord Jesus comes to, to reign on, on this earth. He will eventually take a full and a complete reign in a millennium of peace, but he is not going to do it overnight. Um, and that's just an interesting thing to, to keep in mind. So that's one characteristic of David that's fairly obvious, that he is the king. He comes out as the king and he is a type of Christ as the king on this earth. The Lord Jesus was not a king, um, or he didn't function as one when he was here in his humility, um, even though he was one. Um, he didn't function as one here in his humility. And at the moment, he's not functioning as one. He's functioning as our great high priest in heaven. But the scripture tells us that there will come a day when he will come himself, set his feet down upon this earth, and reign and set everything right. Um, so that's David the king. And um, in chapter six, there's another characteristic of David that's very similar to, to our Lord Jesus as well. Um, and in chapter six, he is the priest. Um, and that's, that's, that's another function of the Lord Jesus. And it, David 
shows both of these and i think later he's the prophet as well um but as he as he as he takes his place um his these roles expand and in chapter six um he he takes an interest in the ark now you'll you'll remember um from the writings of moses that the ark was um it was a box um and it it was coated it was made of wood it was coated in gold um and it contained um aaron's rod the Ten Commandments, and a pot of manna. Um, and it was basically the presence of God on this earth in a typical form. There were cherubim on it. There was a mercy seat. Um, and it was the place, wherever the ark was, was, the, was really the dwelling of God. It was the place where God dwelt amongst his people. And that's what he loved to do. And David, the ark had been, was put aside for a while. Um, in the book of Judges, it was out in the land of the Philistines. It was returned. It was all over the place. And it was sitting in someone's house. And David desires to bring the ark in. Um, if David is going to be king, he doesn't want to be king for his own power and privilege. He wants to be king um, so that he might restore God's rightful place amongst his people. And we see this happen in stages um, over the, over the next few chapters, the ark is brought in first and then um, it falls and someone tries to, uh, Uzzah tries to, 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 to push it back. And he ends up um, being killed by God for daring to touch the ark. Contrary to the instructions, David gets angry. He doesn't understand why God has allowed this. Then David says, well, he puts the ark aside and he forgets about it for a season, basically just leaves it in someone's house. And that man is blessed. Um, and that's that's a moral lesson that wherever the Lord Jesus dwells in any in any household where he has his rightful place, there is blessing. Um, and so the ark gets David uh, renews his desire to bring the ark in when he sees this. Um, and the ark is then is rightfully brought into the into the city. And I just want to just dwell on one point. Um, you know, the scripture says that David is a man after God's own heart um and i think we were talking about this not too long ago in a in a young people's meeting saul was he's 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 against god he's contrary to god and all saul did was refuse to um get rid of some cattle and made an offering at an inappropriate time and david you'll see in second samuel commits all manner of sin um, he goes right to the depths beyond, um, you know, he, he goes right to the very lowest place. But God says he is a man after his own heart. He delights in him. And I'll, I'll share this. This is something Mike uh, mentioned, uh, he was saying to me a few, a few weeks ago, and I, I've been thinking about it. And it's true. Why is he a man after God's own heart? Um, it's true. I always thought it was because he learned to repent. And that's true. Um, he was a man after God's own heart because he learned to confess his mistakes. But there's something more than that. You look through this, this book and there is one thing about David that just shines beyond even his dependence upon God. And that is he loves the presence of God amongst his people. David, his priority is to bring the ark in. He wants God to have his rightful place amongst his people. He desires to build God a house. It comes from his own heart, from his own initiative. 
Um, he wants that God will have a place to dwell amongst the people. It was what his heart was on. And guess what? That's what God's heart is on. That's what God desires to do. That was the whole purpose why he redeemed Israel um, out of the land of Egypt, so that he might dwell amongst them. That's the reason why he created man, um, that there might be men who he could dwell amongst and that would dwell with him. That's God's heart. You know, when you have a, um, an acquaintance or someone that you do business with, um, you talk about the stuff that you're dealing with each other on. So if I'm, um, I don't know, buying beams from Derby and we're talking business and I'm telling him my, my construction plans and he's telling me what product he can give me and we're talking how much it's going to cost and we're talking what the product is. But if I love Derby and, and, and our hearts are knit, I will, I'll ask him how he's going. I want to know what his, his circumstances are. I want to know what he's feeling. I want to know what his heart is thinking about. And, and he might say to me, look, I've been really burdened by this thing. And this is what I'm thinking about. And it knits our hearts together. And David was the same way with God. David wasn't a man who just dealt with God. David was a man who was after God's own heart because he found out what God valued. God valued dwelling amongst his people. And David valued it as well. And that's why he's so, um, such a beautiful character to, to examine and to, um, and to consider and to take as an, as an example for ourselves. Um, okay, so we mentioned that, he, that the ark was brought in in, in stages. Um, in chapter 7, we have David requesting that he build a, a house for God. So David says, look, God, you've given me so much. You've, you've established me as, as a king. And, and I, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a physical dwelling where you, you will have your place um, amongst the people. Um, and there was, when I was reading this chapter, I was, there seems to be these like two points where, where what David is saying is butting against what, what God is saying to him um, in the words of Nathan. Nathan first says to him, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Um, well, I don't know if, if, if Nathan was just thinking of on his own initiative or, or where he was, he was getting this from. But Nathan receives a word from God and he comes back to David and he says to him, you're not to build this house for God. Your son will build this house for God. But the point where it meets is really interesting because David's key thing that he keeps saying is, I want to build a house for God. And God's response is not, no, don't build me a house. God's response is, I will build a house for David. Um, and it, it seems to be that there, so David wants to build a house for God, but God's response is actually interesting because he says, I want to build a house for David. I'll see if I can find you the verse. Um, so verse eight, he says, and now thus shalt thou say unto my servant, David, thus says Jehovah of hosts, I took thee from the pasture grounds from following the sheep to be prince over my people over Israel. And I have been with thee whithersoever thou wentest and have cut off all thine enemies from before thee and have made thee a great name like unto my name of the great men that are on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people for Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and be disturbed no more. Neither shall the sons of wickedness afflict them any more as formerly. Um, verse 11 in the middle of it, I've given thee rest from all thine enemies. Um, and Jehovah telleth thee that Jehovah will make thee a house. Um, and, and, you know, where those two points meet 
is it's not just God being kind to David. Um, spiritually, it goes far beyond that. You know, David wanted to build God a house, a physical house. Um, and, you know, when God says, I'm going to build you a house, David, he goes on to say that your house is going to your, your kingdom is going to abide forever. And we know who fills that kingdom. You know, when when you read the Gospel of Matthew, um, it says of the Lord Jesus that he is son of David. Um, and he is going to be the one who inherits David's throne, David's house. He is going to be the one who fills the lineage of David in, in his kingdom when, when he comes. And I can't help but think David saying to God, I want to build you a house. And God says, I am going to build it and I'm going to build it with my own son. Um, I'm going to establish him forever. Um, and it's a, it's a continuation. It's like the line that God has brought out in David is going to be fulfilled fully and properly in our Lord Jesus when, when, when he comes. Um, okay, so moving on from the point of the of the house in chapter eight, basically a new new thing comes upon us. There's there's war, there's victories, there's David um, extend, expanding his kingdom, um, mainly among the the Philistines, the Moabites, um, the surrounding nations. David is 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 expanding, um, and then in 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 chapter nine, there is one of the 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 nicest. Not nicest, but one of the most wonderful pictures that we we have in in scripture of the gospel, um, and we we got to just dwell on it just for a minute. Um, typically, remember we said that there are things in the Bible that are types. Um, typically, it's it's probably a type as David takes his his place. He picks um, a son of his enemy. Um, or a grandson of his enemy of, of one who was who was who was who was against him, um, but the son of Jonathan of one whom he loved and he blesses him. He chooses to bless him, and the Lord Jesus will do that physically, I believe, on on this earth when he when he takes from among the nation of Israel, the nation that that hated him, the nation that crucified him. When there is a remnant of those whom love him, who who will wait for him, um, who he will. Um, bring in and and bring them into just absolute blessing on on pure terms of grace. So Mephibosheth um, is the character of chapter nine. I'm sure we all know him. You know Mephibosheth. He was dropped when he was young, and he he was lame on both his feet. He couldn't walk, and he basically had no. There was nothing for this man. Um, you know today maybe if you're if you're lame there is support for you. I mean, you can get you get health care. You can get um, a pension, you can get, um, the government will provide carers for you, they'll provide for your needs. You know, in those days, there was nothing like that. If you were lame on both your feet, good luck to you. You were pretty much the beggar that was in, um, that was, that was, will, will be, be sitting by the temple, um, unable to do anything but just beg for money, um, like the one we have in the New Testament in the, in the book of Acts. So Mephibosheth, is a worthless guy. He's just a worthless guy, um, to put it bluntly. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Um, the people who are qualified for the gospel are the worthless people. Um, if you are worthless spiritually, you qualify for the gospel. If you're strong on your feet and you can look after yourself spiritually, you don't qualify. In The only qualification that anyone has for the gospel is that they're a sinner. 
is that they not only are a sinner, but they have no capacity to look after themselves, provide for themselves or meet their needs. Um, that is the qualification for the gospel. And David is a type of the Lord Jesus. He brings Mephibosheth in and he seats him at his table. Um, he brings him in and he says, you'll sit at my table and you'll eat my bread before me continually. Um, he takes this man who has no rightful claim to anything except to be killed. Um, he was the grandson of David's rival, Saul, and he blesses him. And he blesses him forever. And he blesses him without any conditions. And he blesses him for no, nothing good in the man. Um, and he provides for all his needs and he, and he gives, him, gives him absolutely everything. That's grace. Um, Ephesians says that we are saved um, by grace uh, through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. And there's, there's just a beautiful verse. I just want to read it to you in this, in this chapter. Um, I'll just find it. And it just really goes to show that David understood God's heart. He says in verse uh, chapter nine and verse three, from the middle of it, he says, is there not, or from the start, he says, and the king said, is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Just that, that phrase, the kindness of God. David understood the heart of God. God's heart is kind. It's not just normal kindness. It's not the kindness of someone who, who has pity on you and just gives you something to keep you going. It's not the kindness of someone who says, poor you, you, you terrible sinner. I'll forgive you that, that sin that you committed. The God's heart is just beyond anything we can comprehend. The fullness of the kindness of God. He takes us, enemies, dead. Um, contrary to him, hating him. Um, and he just sends his son, the Lord Jesus, to die for our sins. He gives us the place of sons with him. He gives us an eternal blessing, a hope everlasting, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, he brings us into a body with him of love, of joy, of peace, of hope. And he does all this completely unmerited. To, to each of us um, and it's just it's a wonderful the kindness of God it's just above and beyond anything that we are capable of, of thinking of um, all right so that's Mephibosheth and then we have I'll go just quickly over the next few chapters uh, chapter chapter 10 um, the the Syrians um, reject um, David um, David's kindness to them. And that's, that's an example of how God treats us when, when we despise his kindness, when rather than accepting it, we, we reject it. Um, the, the, the answer is um, vengeance. Um, and, and that's what the world has waiting for, rejecting the kindness of, of God's heart. Um, then in chapter 11 and 12, um, we have onwards, we have just a, a real sad story and picture of David's absolute failure. You know, if he was, if he was a man after God's own heart, he was still a man. Um, and if he's a man, it doesn't stop him going to the very lowest place morally and spiritually and physically and in, in his dealings with those around him. Um, he commits adultery. 
he follows it up by lying. He follows it up by committing a murder to cover it up. And he follows it up by basically pretending like nothing is wrong um, after committing all, all these things. Um, and, and Uriah, who's the, the wife of Bathsheba, the man who David has killed in order that he might take his wife from him. Uriah is just a beautiful type of just faithfulness against all of this. David tries his hardest to get Uriah to come home so that it might look like the son was, was Uriah's who Bathsheba um, became, becomes pregnant. Um, I don't want to assume too much if you don't know the story, but David um, sleeps with this woman who's married to Uriah. Um, she becomes pregnant and David sends Uriah out to the, the fiercest part of the battle to die um, after he refuses to come home and spend time with his wife. So it could, might look like Uriah was the, was, was the father. Um, and Uriah is just faithful through the whole thing. And David, just an absolute characteristic of unfaithfulness. Um, and Nathan, the prophet, comes to David in, um, in chapter 12. Um, and he says to, he tells him this story and he convicts him of, of, of his sin. And um, he basically says to David, you know, D- David, one thing that's really good about David is that David, David knows how to repent. Um, turn with me to Psalm 51. I think someone mentioned this, um, I think it was last week, um, when we were looking at First, first Samuel. Um, or it was mentioned a number of times, actually, I believe. When, Sam, when Saul committed his little, his itty-bitty incomparative sin, um, his response was, honor me before the people. Forget about it. Come on, just make me look good. But David, um, he weighs the sin before God. And he says in Psalm 50, uh, 51, you can read through the psalm in your time later, but I just want to share one verse with you. He says in verse 4, against thee, against you, God, only, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. And he goes on to say, God, I was born in iniquity. Um, I was brought forth and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you will have truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Repentance is not when we say, I got busted. Um, got to cover that one up. Make me look good in front of everybody like nothing happened. No, repentance is when we come before God and we say, God, I've sinned against you where no man can see, where no man knows what's really going on in our hearts. And we can say, God, it's against you that I have done this. And if you want to make me look bad in front of everybody, you make me look bad in front of everybody. But I want you to know I've sinned against you. And that's a turning of heart. That's genuine repentance. And that's what David did. Um, and David realized that there was no offering for him because he was, this was a willful sin. You know, the offerings were only if you did something accidentally. But David realized there was nothing for him. This wasn't accidental. This was calculated, um, prolonged to the depths. This was full on. And David can rest on one thing. We've talked about the kindness of God. David rests upon the mercy of God. But God is merciful. God is merciful to the worst of sinners. He said, I did, the Lord Jesus said, I did not come for those who are, um, have no need, um, but I've come for those who are sinners, for those who are sick. Um, 
a physician isn't called for for someone who's well. It's called for someone who's he's called for someone who's sick. And God's mercy is shown upon us as sinners when we call out to him and say, forgive me, oh God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Um, and David finds mercy. And OK, I've got to t- tie this up. But um, just just briefly, I want to just mention one one other thing that um, there is a difference in God's ways with us spiritually and governmentally. OK, they're two different things. God says, as soon as David says, sorry, God says it's over. And that's how he deals with us. As soon as we say, I repent, God, I'm sorry. God wipes the slate. He says, I've also forgiven your sin through Nathan, Nathan, the prophet. But he says, there's going to be a sword. that's going to rip its way through your house. And sometimes we still have to suffer the consequences here on earth of the bad decisions that we make. And sometimes, like in David's case, those consequences last for a lifetime. And we'll just whiz through the next chapters. 13, um, we find um, basically just absolute wickedness in David's household amongst his children. You find rape, um, you find murder, you find um, hatred of of one and the other, you find all manner of deception. Um, And then it goes on in chapter 14 and 15, one one of David's sons, Absalom, tries to take the throne from him. Um, or he's, he, he kills his brother and, 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 um, and, and disappears, and then he's brought back by Joah. But I won't go into the, the details. They're, they're there in the, in the book if you want to look at them. Um, but in chapter 15, you find Absalom, basically, he establishes himself as the king instead of David. He wants to establish himself, have David's place, and he does it in a really sneaky way. Um, and Absalom's the type of, of, of antichrist. He's a type of, of someone who, um, even though he, his place was, was um, he, he tries to take a place basically of Christ that doesn't, doesn't belong to him um, by usurping the authority. David flees um, and um, waits for, um, eventually in the coming chapters, Joab defeats Absalom. Um, he kills him. Absalom was a beautiful man. Um, he's a type of, of, um, of, of Antichrist in another way in that um, Antichrist is basically going to be a false Christ who, who sets himself up on, on this earth in the, in the final days. And he's going to be, he's going to be good. Um, he's going to be really good. He's going to be a smooth talker. He's going to be good looking. I imagine he's going to be everything suave and great about, about man. And he's going to deceive many. Um, and Absalom was the same way. His hair was so, so he had so much hair that um, he used to cut it every year. And it, and it just, I can't remember the exact figure, but it weighed a ton. Um, he was, he had, a, he had his, he, his crown was his head. There was no blemish on the man, um, but he ends up dying um, pinned into a tree. Joab kills him. Um, and David is is returned back into to Israel. And there are some really nice characters that you can, in chapter 15, there's a guy called Itai. If you get a chance to just look at look at Itai, this guy is just an absolute trailblazer. Um, he, he says to David, he says, whethersoever my Lord will be, I'm going to be there. You're going to be in death. You're going to be in life. I'm going to be with you. Wherever you go, I'm going to be with you. And that's a, it's a wonderful type of, of how we should be um, in relation to, to the Lord Jesus. Um, and then there's these other characters too. Um, I'm, I'm running out. I'll just go quickly. Zebra and Shimei. And you can, you can look at them uh, later uh, in chapter 16. Um, end of the story is that um, David is supported by the priests. Um, he is returned back to his rightful place after um, Absalom dies. Um, he retakes the, the kingdom. 
um, and then he he begs mercy. He, he 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 he's he's really sad, basically, for the loss of Absalom. Joab, being the the wise man in a worldly sense that he is, he he gets him over his sadness, and he tells him, "You got to forget your son. You got to rejoice in front of the people." Um, and David is is finally restored. Um, and then just finally, um, um, I'll just quickly go over. I'll skip the next few chapters and just finally just bring out the last chapter. David comes out as a prophet. Um, he is um, in chapter 23 and 24. Um, you have um, David's last words, really. Um, and um, just like Jacob was another example of this. He was like uh, a wretch in his life and um on the top of the mountain spiritually at his death. Um, David had this really low, you know, tortuous experience in his household and God used it to, to teach him so many wonderful lessons. God uses the bad things to, to bring out the good. And you can see in chapter 23, just David coming out in, in absolute faith, um, the anointed of the God of Jacob, we have in verse one, in verse two, the spirit of Jehovah spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. And the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, the ruler among men shall be just ruling um, in the fear of God. And I think David is just looking beyond now. Um, he's looking to see Christ. He's looking to see, he, he knows that his house is in absolute disorder um, and Solomon will one day take the throne, but he, he's just, he's lost confidence in the ability of any man to, to, to rightfully take a place like this. And I think he's just looking right ahead at Christ. He says in the Psalms, I will not be satisfied until I arise with, with your, your image or your likeness. Um, and, um, and we'll just, we'll close it, close it at that.